0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute.
1: We hope you enjoy listening to this.
0: For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu. Hello, good evening
1: everyone. Uh, my name is Youssef Fedakdor. I'm a faculty in the biology program here. I would like to thank you for being here tonight, uh, especially those who came from Dubai and from Al Ain as well. You must be very enthusiastic about falcons or genetics. <laughs> so it's really my great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Professor Mike uh, Broford. Uh, so, I got to know his work since actually I was an undergraduate student so uh, Mike is a professor at the uh, uh, Division of uh, Biosciences at Cardiff University. He is also uh, chair uh, co chair or co director of the Sustainable Places Research Institute at Cardiff and he also has a lot of other positions related to conservation biology of endangered species policy making he advises on all sorts of issues on how to use genetics to help conservation of of different species, not just endangered, but also domesticated uh, species. So tonight he's gonna be talking about some of the work that he is doing, and in particular, his work on falcons. Uh, So I I got to know some of the work that Mike was doing actually uh, because he was one of the really early people that uh, adopted DNA fingerprinting that was developed for humans but for birds. So his early work was uh, adapting those uh, techniques that were discovered by Sir Alec Jeffries at the University of Leicester where Mike got his PhD. Uh, It happens that I also did my master's in the same school and it was a very exciting time at the time because it was very exciting to use genetic techniques in different uh, contexts. So as a conservation biologist, It's very exciting to be able to use genetics as a tool to help conservation of species. Uh, So please help me uh, in welcoming Mike to stage. Uh, Mike?
0: Thank you you very much indeed, uh, Yusuf, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, And with such wonderful weather, and with all of those birds coming through on passage at the moment as well. Uh, to uh, To make things very interesting, just walking around any patch of green so um, so yes i I'm, I'm I'm very um pleased to 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 give you a talk today about um, conservation genomics and in this case adaptive management of falcons. but I think um, what i'm doing really or what I intend to do is use falcons almost as a as an example of the kinds of things that you can do with genetics, and specifically, actually, uh, genomics um, nowadays. And, um, and I, I have to start out by pointing out that the work that I'm talking about today is, um, uh, those of you who do genomics or know about genomics know that it, it's, you have to do it in teams. Um, and uh, my colleagues, Shang Zhang Zan and Sheng Kai Pan, who are um, at the Institute of Zoology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, and also Andrew Dixon, who sat in the audience uh, here today, um, have played a huge role in um, this, this work. Um, and Shangjiang, really, I would say, in many ways has, has led uh, a lot of it. So um, what I'm gonna talk about, really, is uh, the nexus between conservation and genomics. Um, and I'm going to uh, give you a slightly potted history on how that, how that whole thing has developed over the years. Um, as, as Yusuf kindly pointed out, I've been involved in it from the beginning. So uh, it, it's a very long time now, really, um, since, since really the 1980s. Um, and, uh, and then a little bit about conservation genomics to differentiate it, really, from genetics. Um, and uh, we'll, just to give you an idea of what additional information you can potentially give. And then, uh, actually, the the the, um, the work that we've been doing here on Peregrine Saker Falcons, funded by the Environment Agency uh, of Abu Dhabi, has um, developed over quite a few years now. And uh, it's sort of a, a history of about seven, eight years of, of research. And it gives me an opportunity to develop an, a sort of anatomy of an omics project, if you like. How does that actually happen um, in practice? And then I'll add a few things at the end which are uh, potentially um coming from from what i what i talked about so if we talk at, look at the the history i I could go back really to um the first book that was ever produced on genetics and conservation, which was uh, by Otto Frankel and Michael Sule back in 1982, which came out um, just before uh, I started my PhD, but had a lot of uh, the basic ideas which I'm gonna talk about in here. But I'm going to really start the story um, with a bit of a surprise development that happened in 2010. The reason why I say it was a surprise development is that Really begin since the um, genesis of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which was agreed, the vast majority of which was agreed at the Rio Convention uh, in 1992. um, The definitions of biodiversity changed a lot to become very operational and very operationalized for governments to be able to reach targets uh, and address priorities. And during that process, really between 1992 and 2010, genetics was almost, almost ignored, even though you read any textbook, and that textbook tells you that biodiversity comprises three levels, communities or ecosystems, um, species, and the genetic material within those species, that genetic material had almost been e- entirely ignored, in, ignored in, in in target setting, ignored in any form of real um, meaningful holding governments to account for their... Uh, protection and bio- biological diversity, but um, and I think this has got parts some something to do with the onset of genomics, but also climate change. To our surprise, in Nagoya in 2010, at the the conference of parties um, on, the, uh, on the on the, on the CBD, and this is a very famous conference because it was uh, the conference where it became apparent that the first set of objectives and targets for the CBD, which is um, the 2010 targets to hold the loss of biodiversity, have been spectacularly missed and failed. Um, What what politicians often do when they miss a set of targets is they establish another set of targets for themselves, and in this case, the 2020 targets that were developed in the Aichi Prefecture um, in Nagoya, and much to the surprise of myself, who'd been trying to bang on about this for several decades, but also many of my colleagues, Target 13 appeared, which effectively is the first ever genetic targets for um, signatory countries of the CBD, which basically says the genetic diversity of cultivated plants, farmed and domesticated animals, their wild relatives, but also socio-economically, and this is really important to state here, culturally valuable species, are maintained and strategies have been developed and implemented to minimize their genetic erosion and safeguard genetic diversity. And there it was in black and white uh, for the first time that signatories of the convention um, were, were compelled to, to, um, to take actions to halt the loss of genetic diversity as well as other kinds of d- diversity. And lots of countries have developed their national strategies. This is the funny thing, you know, um, uh, 2010 was the International Year of Biodiversity. How many people knew that 2010 was the International Year of Biodiversity? Anybody? Virtually nobody. What a surprise. Um, it, it sort of passed by unnoticed. So this is another one, cunning trick by the, the, um, the politicians. So 2010, the International Year of Biodiversity has morphed into 2010 to 2020, the international decade on biodiversity. And, and, and and lots of governments, including the, the governments of the United Arab Emirates, have developed their national strategies for um, halting the loss of biodiversity over this 10-year period. Um, and they're all very interesting. They all follow the CBD to a greater or lesser extent, um, but they, they all set their own, uh, own, own targets. Um, And uh, these are things that that it's worth reading. It's definitely worth reading to understand what your local um, government uh, is planning uh, in terms of of biodiversity loss. Um, The problem, actually, for all biodiversity conservation target setting is that you also need to measure the biodiversity that you are. You can't prove that you've halted the loss of something if you cannot measure it. In the first place and that's been a problem that's bedeviled all levels of um, biodiversity and the organization that is charged with allowing the measurement to happen is known as the BIP the Biodiversity Indicators Partnership and this organization effectively is responsible for deriving the metrics that we can use to actually measure how well we're doing in halting the loss of biodiversity. They're very good. They've even got their own iPhone app, so they must be very good. Um, And and basically, they derive a set of indicators with partners. And this is who we originally approached to um, to, to sort of get genetics on the map. Um, However, all is not great. Um, The indicators are, by necessity, incredibly high level. They're very derived, and sometimes they're not even very relevant. So, um, interestingly, this uh, one of the indicators that's that's under development is trends in genetic diversity of species. Okay, and that um, that is currently uh, uh, summarised. And this is trend in genetic diversity of species of all life on the planet. Okay, that is currently summarised actually by the genetic diversity of terrestrial. domesticated animals. Ex-situ crop collections is in development. This is the one. Genetic diversity of um, terrestrial domesticated animals. That is the proxy for genetic diversity of all life on Earth. How do they measure it? They count the number of breeds. Okay, that is the simple um, metric that is used, and that is supposed to represent all of our genetic diversity. Um, Unfortunately, even when we do that, uh, this is the mid-term assessment. Came out in the end of 2014. The BIP and a bunch of other organizations did a midterm assessment on how we are doing against the Aichi targets, which I mentioned earlier. And uh, genetic diversity of terrestrial domesticated animals is unfortunately not doing very well. It's going down. It's going down below the, uh, the threshold that uh, it was supposed not to pass. And it's predicted to predict end up. Um, around about 0.89% of the original, uh, sorry, uh, 89% of the original um, target. So it's not doing very well. And in fact, um, many, many of these targets are not doing very well. And it's unfortunately the case that we are going to hit 2020 and we're going to be in exactly the same situation again. Uh, about a year ago, I was here in in, in Abu Dhabi for the IUCN Chairs meeting, um, and people were openly talking about 2030. So you know the, the the goalposts are going to be moved another decade, and one has to ask the question: you know, how many times can we do this, or do we need to make more meaningful targets that can be realistically achieved but actually prove um, provide better progress? So, um, but this, this, to be frank, this um, interpretation of genetic diversity is really almost arbitrary. Well, it is arbitrary, it seems to me. The only reason that this, um, this uh, particular uh, metric is used as a proxy for biodiversity or genetic diversity is that, A, it can be measured easily, and B, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization are measuring it. And so that's that's the reason why it's, the, it's the, met, the metric that's being used. So we need a new paradigm on genetic diversity, uh, and that is something that we're working very hard towards, and I will come back to that uh, towards the end. But that, that is really where we are right now in terms of um, uh, global policy on, uh, on biodiversity and uh, the use of genetics. So I'm briefly going to talk about conservation genomics, which is, as a concept, something that's been relatively, um, is relatively new. There have been a, a number of review articles um, and a few papers, and I'm just going to very briefly talk about um, a few issues around that. In Europe, uh, we've had um, a, a special program on conservation genomics that ran until last May. Um, and uh, one of the, the outcomes that came out of that um, program, aside from a lot of training of people, particularly in uh, genomic um, me- molecular biology techniques, but also bioinformatics, uh, was, this, uh, was an article that we published last year, which tried to um, ask the question, if we can't get the politicians to understand genetics and to take genetics seriously, how on earth are we going to get them to take genomics seriously? That's another big step that needs to be taken. Um, But actually, it seems that that, that there is is some hope here, and we're pushing at a, uh, perhaps not an open door, but a door that's becoming ajar. And I think it's it's actually uh, climate change and adaptation that's really the, the big issue. For many years, when I was talking to politicians around the use of genetics in conservation, they would say to me, well, what are you measuring? we would say well we're measuring genetic diversity in the genome in what genes oh well, we're not really measuring in genes well what does that tell you about evolution then and that's always been a, a, a discussion that we've had to have at the policy level and i think they're quite ad- attractive both to the technology but also to the concept that we can finally um tell them some information about regions of the genome and genetic diversity that actually matters that means something that equips populations to potentially um, survive anthropogenic pressures, including climate change and other um, and other methods the the problem has been that uh, until very recently there just simply weren 't enough genomes sequenced to be able to do this properly um, there were There were relatively few mainly model organisms. And it's only really been in the last five years that enough genomes have been sequenced that we can start to tell questions about adaptation apart from um, other uh, factors that are going on in the genome. Why does this matter? What are we trying to conserve by doing this kind of work? Well, I think you can more or less think about it in terms of evolutionary potential where we can look at the, um, the importance of Genome-wide variation. This is the gene. This is the variation across all of your DNA, all three point three billion base pairs of your DNA, organised into the chromosomes. Um, there's lots of genetic variation. There are lots of genetic um, uh, 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 markers there that we can use. And the point is that we don't understand the relationship between that variation and um, the resilience of populations to Environmental stresses, especially if we are if we're looking at non-model organisms, where either the reference genome has only just been produced or has not yet been produced, and there are many many um, programs out there which are designed now to sequence the genomes of all living mammals, all living birds, so that we can start to get there. So we're interested in in variation across the genome, and the reason for that is that. For many traits, for many characteristics that we have, we don't understand the underlying genetic basis of it in natural populations. In some cases, we have a good idea of the genes that should be involved. But the magnitude of their importance not only is species-specific, but it is population-specific as well. So there are a number, so so whereas for many model organisms, species where we can eliminate environmental effects, we can study these things very closely. Uh, In most natural populations of species, even what we call large effect loci, markers that that really determine something important about phenotype, and I'll show you one in a minute, um, even these may not behave in the same way. And so every time we want to study this, we have to start again. So basically what we're trying to do is equip populations of endangered species with the resilience to evolve and adapt under the, um, the, the, the very, very severe changes that we are bringing about as uh, the human species, and to, to equip them to be able to do that in a very short time scale. There have been some marvelous examples of the use of population genomics already in really practical sense. So for example, for marine fish, um, Many marine fish species, and certainly in Europe, we are absolutely obsessed by identifying stocks. Why do we want to know about stocks? Well, because if we know about stocks, we know when we're overfishing. We know where a particular stock is, we know it's popular, we can estimate what its uh, population size is, and we know what the offtake rate is sustainable. And so whenever you buy fish which has got um, uh, sustainable fisheries tag on it, there has been some estimation carried out by a statistician somewhere which says this fishery is sustainable. To identify stocks of common commercial um, marine fish may seem to be something relatively easy to do, but in fact it's not. And one of the reasons for that is because they live in the ocean and they have very low levels of population. structure. So If you want to fish an animal out of the ocean in the Bay of Biscay or if you want to fish an animal out of the ocean in the North Atlantic and you want to be able to tell where they come from, those two two regions have to be genetically differentiated. They have to be genetically different. If they're not, you can't tell. And for most um, uh, marine fish, the level of differences between different populations in the ocean is very subtle indeed. So, using any old random genetic marker, like a DNA fingerprint such as you uh, mentioned, it won't tell you what part of the ocean those fish have come out of. To do that, you have to find parts of the genome that are responding to local conditions that are becoming differentiated um, from uh, the populations. And this is what this group did. A, it was a, a group of uh, European scientists running a project called Fish Pop Trace, What they did is that they looked for what's known as SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms or single variants in the genome. Then they um, looked at those variants and then they asked the question, how do they behave in terms of differentiating stocks compared to the average marker across the genome? And the ones that were the best at differentiating populations were the ones that they chose to make what they called a SNP panel. Now that SNP panel comprises parts of the genome that are showing local genetic signatures, local adaptation. Okay. So they're using the genome-wide variation in local adaptation to develop a panel to make an applied traceability tool. And now they have a single uh, tool, uh, uh, something called a SNP chip, which they can apply to any fish that's landed for these four species, On the key side of a uh, of a a fishing port, and they can identify where they come from, and they can take that information, and then they can say, "Well, is the fisherman telling the truth, or is the is the fishmonger who's selling me this fish, and telling me it's come from a certified sustainable fishery, is that really where it's come from?" So that's the basic idea. Wonderful example of how you can use genomics. Uh, and genome-wide variation in in um, diversity to give you a to give you a, um, a really useful tool. <clears throat> Here's another interesting. This is a really iconic conservation species. This is Chabowski's horse, the only extant wild horse. This is a um, an animal that uh, went through what's known as a genetic bottleneck. It nearly disappeared at the beginning of the 20th century. Went down to 12 individuals. Um, now there's about 2,000 of them. Um, but the problem with Schiavolsky's horse and its conservation is that we know that there are domestic horses that were used very early on to try and rescue the population and bring it up more quickly. Okay, um, And what, what, they've, uh, what uh, people who have studied this animal have done is study the genomes of um, these animals uh, in the captive population and um, also animals that were deposited in the museum just at the time the species was going extinct. So this is the sort of example of the, the native state before the horses came into the equation, uh, and so they, um, they, they have sequenced the genomes of these animals plus domestic horses. Now, the captive population of Chevalsky's horses is managed into two groups, pure and hybrid. The problem is the pure group which is the one that they think has no horse background in it, is pure, apparently, but is also suffering problems from inbreeding depression. Whereas the hybrids group okay, has, um, is not pure, and so it has a lower status in the captive breeding program, but those animals are much fitter. They're producing more offspring. They're bringing the population up at a more rapid rate. So what they've done in these situations is they've looked across the whole genome using the horse, domestic horse reference genome, and measured diversity right across the genome and inbreeding. Now the, the pale green bars here, these are the highest level of genetic diversity in the genome. These pale green bars and on this one here are the five individuals that were sequenced from the museum specimens of Schiwalski's horse. Um, which were taken just at the point when they were starting to go extinct. Then um, we see a number of other um, uh, sequences coming in, but mainly domesticated horses, okay? And if we look at the very bottom of this plot, the dark green are the modern, pure Schabalski's horses. So they have lower um, genetic diversity than both most domesticated horses and lower genetic diversity than their own ancestors, okay? and higher inbreeding. But the reason I'm mentioning this, all all of this is sort of stuff that's been done for many different species, okay? There's nothing um, particularly interesting about this, but the thing that really excites me about this is that by doing local ancestry analysis of the genome, comparing a pure uh, museum specimen, Schiavolski's horse, with a pure domestic horse, we are no longer concerned with individuals, we are concerned with genomic blocks. So this is just a region of chromosome 5 um, in these Chavalsky's horses, and these red bits are bits of horse introgression, and the gray bits are pure Chevalsky's horse, with reference back to those museum specimens. So, um, and because the horse genome is fully annotated, so we know the identities of all of the genes, we can look at which bits have, intra- have been introgressed, <laughs> We can say, what if, the A, do they contain genes? And if they do contain genes, what do those genes code for? And then we can look at the fitness of those individuals. And for the first time, you can go beyond simply saying pure and hybrid, and you can say, well, what genes have been introgressed into these horses, uh, into the Schiavolski's horse? And can we select for the good bits that have come in, eliminate the rest of it to maintain a, a population of Shivali horses that is, has got maximum purity that keeps the bits of genes that come the, have come in from the, uh, from the domestic horse, which is giving that population more fitness. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it, and at the same time eliminate the need to thinking typologically in terms of how you manage uh, populations. So those are just two examples. Of how genomics is really operating in a very practical sense in um, in, in, in uh, endangered species management. So now I'm going to talk about um, <clears throat> uh, about uh, um, our project, our Falcon project, and I say I've called it an, an anatomy of an, an omics project only because it's been going for quite a long time, and it will tell you a little bit about how these things uh, have developed. And just like many people who do the genetics of wild species, we started with a, a simple problem. This problem, effectively, was the fact that um, geofalcons, which are kept in, in captivity, obviously, and used in falconry, are being absolutely hammered in some of their populations by illegal trapping, and mainly to, um, uh, to actually uh, uh, increase the number of large white geofalcons are kept in cap- captivity for falconry purposes. The problem is that when you start breeding geofalcons in captivity, you soon realize that this white plumage okay, is not the only plumage phenotype that you find in captive populations. You get a very dark plumage and an intermediate plumage as well. Um, and we thought, well, uh, let's see if we could investigate the genetic basis of this. Okay, So we used a simple candidate gene approach, Unfortunately, fortunately, um, plumage uh, color, particularly black versus non-black um, in birds, there are only a few candidates. They're very easy to study, and, and you, can, you can usually get something that explains that variation, and very simply, that's what we did. We found a, a SNP, a polymorphism, a mutation in this gene called the MC1R gene, or the melanocortin-1 receptor gene, um, which is associated um, explain basically all of the, of the variation in in plumage color, so by use it potentially by using um, this kind of uh, technique we can in captivity, we can potentially focus breeding on those individuals that have the correct genotype the SNP for um, being a, a white individual it doesn't it doesn 't explain all of the barring it just explains the base color, okay but you, can, you could potentially manage uh, captive populations to maximize the number of white birds, minimize the number of colored birds, and thereby, in principle, reduce the pressure on the wild populations. Okay? So that's a, an example of a simple candidate gene approach. And, and, and there, there, there are many, many um, species where this has been done, and it's classical single gene reverse genetics. Okay. What I'm gonna talk about next is something a little bit different, and it's basically about hunting for genes that could potentially explain variation when you don't know a priori what you're looking for, okay? Uh, And uh, with Andrew um, and and colleagues, we have been working for um, some time um, with the Middle East Falconry Research Group, uh, and um, particularly focusing on two species, the Saker falcon and the Peregrine falcon, And um, the reason for that is because those these are both species that have um, been very heavily impacted by illegal trapping um, and where there are large um, uh, potential conservation consequences of that trapping and where they are used extensively in in, in falconry. Uh, For the sake of falcon, um, this is a species which in some parts of its range is doing pretty well. Um, but in other parts of its range uh, is declining, especially in Europe, um, the population with the exception of Hungary, although even in Hungary, Andrew says, uh, they're starting to decline again. um, We can see uh, um, a a general massive decline as human land use changes. In other parts of the range, such as China and Kazakhstan, uh, the population seem probably stable or perhaps maybe in some places increasing. Uh, and so we were interested in, in understanding the genetics of these populations, because if we can do that, we can potentially use that information to understand population size, population structure, conservation measures that are needed for that population if they're undergoing illegal trapping, and even identification of animals potentially for, that are being used already in falconry. So to get a sort of genetic cartography of the region. The problem is, this is not a small region of the Earth. So we're looking here from as far um, as far west as Hungary and Slovakia, all the way over to Mongolia, to the uh, high Tibetan plateau. Uh, so it's a huge area to be able to do this kind of work. And we've been doing some work over the last couple of years on the Tibetan plateau as well, where the Saker Falcon uh, p- plays, alongside several other predators, a really important role in ecosystem service regulation. It's a top predator. It particularly hunts on some of the very um, highly densely populated mammal species like the plateau pika um, that exist on, on um, the Tibetan plateau. And the Tibetan plateau is undergoing massive degradation um, uh, and, and loss of soil, soil erosion. The blame for the soil erosion is put squarely on the, the rodents. But it's almost almost certainly overgrazing, uh, and it's overgrazing by sheep and yak, predominantly. Um, but one of the one of the potential uh, conservation solutions to this is by building artificial nests. Um, and here's an artificial nest um, that that the the Chinese government have put in, and they do this because nest sites are often limiting in this large flat landscape. Uh, and if you increase the number of breeding individuals, if you're in increase the number of individuals that are hunting in any given area, and you could potentially address any localized soil erosion problems if indeed the rodents are are, um, eroding the soil. And so we've been working on this for for the last few years now, um, and uh, working in in, um, Qinghai particularly, where uh, we have been um, both uh, radio tracking and um, uh, sampling uh, individuals from different populations and these, these are some birds that we were looking at just last year so that's one of the conservation issues, actually there's a parallel set of conservation issues around the peregrine falcon which I'm not even going to talk about uh, I'm going to predominantly confine my discussion from here on in to the sake falcon so if you want to start hunting genes in populations, the first thing you really need to do is know not the map, the, gen- the genetic map of the landscape, you need to know the genetic map of the organism you're interested in. And to do that, you need to sequence the genome. Uh, and so a few years ago, um, uh, we carried out, um, the we produced what's known as a, a de novo reference genome, the first genome effectively that was, that's been sequenced for a particular species, that has to pass a particular quality threshold so that you can be happy that the genes are in the right order and most of the variation is captured. And we did this a few years ago for the peregrine and the seca. Fortunately, the peregrine and the are, in terms of their chromosomal complement, are relatively simple when it comes to birds. Most birds, especially um, <coughs> a, a lot of passerine species, this number is closer to 40. Um, and, so, uh, and people have already done some mapping of chicken um, chromosome pieces onto um, the the peregrine falcon um, karyotype. So we know a little bit about the broad chunks, where they come from in terms of the chicken karyotype. The chicken was the first bird to be sequenced, as you can imagine. Uh, And we can now also, uh, so we know a little bit about these these large-scale patterns, and now we needed to sequence the genome. At the time when we sequenced these genomes, uh, there was a problem for us, and the problem for us was that there were only um, three birds that had ever whose genome sequence had ever been published. At that point, we had the chicken, which had a nice genome that had been sequenced using very traditional techniques, but providing really high quality. We had the zebra finch, which was a, another high-quality genome, a passerine bird, obviously a, a, gallif- uh, a galliform in the chicken. We also had another galliform, which is the turkey, but the genome was terrible. It was a mixture of different sequencing chemistries and, and techniques, and very bad indeed. But it, and we also had one um, one reptile to work from. So, this is where we were when we started doing this. Um, but it allowed us to get a, start getting an idea of the genetic architecture of um, these species. And one of the things that immediately struck us um, in, a, in our two, um, our two uh, uh, birds of prey, our two. Falcons was that the level of genetic diversity, the SNP rate per thousand base pairs, was a lot lower than the other species that we were looking at, which we found uh, interesting and a little bit surprising. Um, and so um, this started to make, make us to, to make us wonder what was going on with these genomes, and we we um, we. we Started characterizing that, that genetic diversity. I'll come back to that in a minute. So low, lower genetic diversity across the genome. At the time, of course, only compared to three other avian species. We then um, abstracted out from the genome uh, what we call single-copy orthologous genes. So these are genes that are present, and only one copy in the genome, that were present in all of these species, which, um, which uh, were uh, uh, in, in terms of their sequence, identifiable as being the same thing. Okay, so what we were able to do for that, we were able to do that for 6,200 genes, um, and also uh, for, for multiple copy genes, we were able to do another couple of thousand. We were able to figure out that the TMRCA, which is the time to the most recent common ancestor, for, particularly for the, for the uh, Peregrine Sacre Falcon, was about two and a half million years ago. But the one thing that was really interesting to us from this kind of analysis um, was the fact that actually the peregrine and seca, to our surprise, grouped with the zebrafinch. It wasn't in the middle, so it wasn't equidistant from the galliform and the passerine. It was grouping with the passerine. That shocked us a little bit, although there was a little bit of our previous evidence that said that, that there may be some phylogenetic signal there. So we saw that kind of um, uh, uh, pattern, and we also got very excited um, by, by the fact that when we compare the, um, the peregrine and the Saker genome with each other, we saw higher rates of molecular evolution, driven molecular evolution, and basically this is just how fast the genes are evolving in a way that changes the structure of the protein. So faster rates of molecular evolution when we carried out the peregrine-Saker comparison than any other comparison that made us wonder whether or not for some reason there was strong selection going on in these genomes and they were evolving um, functionally in a different uh, trajectory to the other species. And we did find some really uh, extraordinarily interesting things, here's one anecdote really. These are known as olfactory receptor um, gene copies um, and uh, olfactory receptors um, proliferate in species that need them to allow us to detect different Odors, so it's basically found in the odor, odor receptor bulb, um, and here, for example, are the number of different olfactory receptor um, genes that have been found in the chicken. They they evolve by um, by a rapid rapid evolution, um, and um, this in black here uh, here is the zebra finch, and then in black and, and in in um, sorry in red and in in uh, purple are the sequences for the Peregrine and Sacre. So we found far, far fewer uh, olfactory receptor uh, gene copies in the the genomes of these two falcons than we found in the other birds. One is tempted to use a bit of adaptive storytelling and say that, well, you know, uh, a Darwinian explanation of this would be that these are sight predators. They don't use olfaction, they use their eyes. Okay, and so it may be that if we then looked at Um, other genes involved in vision, we'd see uh, more uh, uh, evidence of of directed evolution in those parts of the genome. We were really interested, however, in their bills. And the reason for that is that because the bill, the makeup of the bill in terms of of depth, uh, length, and width is something that's been studied a lot. It's been studied in chickens. It's also been studied in in a very important sense. It's been studied in in Darwin's finches, because of the evolution of bill polymorphism in Darwin's finches, in, and its role in in um, sympatric speciation that's happened on the islands um, of the Galapagos, and so we know the pathway pretty well actually for these things, and we see a lot of different innovations in the in the um, the, the falcon uh, genome that leads us to believe that there's been some really new innovations within the genome. So BMP, which is one of the most important um, uh, pathways, we see copy number variation, we see um, a lot of uh, uh, genes where we see new exons, um, so exonization happening within the same genes compared to other um, uh, uh, birds, and also uh, a variety of other Um, structural variants, and even microRNAs, which are um, constraining expression, and also evidence for positive selection. So a whole variety of different processes going on, creation of new exons, um, uh, microRNA expression, modulation, and structural variation as well. So there's a lot of um, really interesting stuff going on. If you strip out all of those genes that you're hunting for, and you just look at the variation across the genome, um, you can use that information to tell you about the change in effective population size, the number of individuals in the population over time. And one of the interesting things that we found here was a contrasting pattern of change in population size uh, over time. Um, and this is at about half a million years in the, in, for, for this particular point. Um, and at this p- particular period in time, the, um, the the step, the the cold, dry. Whether you need to open up the steppe ecosystem probably led to an expansion in the number of individuals. And this, but this, I'll come back to why there's a, a problem, a caveat with that explanation. Whereas the peregrine, which requires um, uh, in the past at least mountainous regions, usually cliff-based regions, that may be eliminated during very cold periods, uh, underwent a decline. Um, the reason why there's an issue with that explanation is that the the Saker Falcon, and this is important, I'll come back to it in a minute. The Saker Falcon is probably the world's youngest falcon species. Uh, it, it, it diverged from the common Hero Falcon ancestor probably no more than 30 to 40,000 years ago. So, what was happening back half a million years ago was affecting this Hero Falcon ancestor, but not the Saker Falcon. Um, and seika falcons and, and presumably other hero falcons have expanded in the recent past, um, again, possibly as a result of their diversification or habitats opening up as they became diversified into the jir and the seika, the lana and the Jugger. Um, I just wanted to come back. Uh, one of the things that was happening at the same time as we were doing this genome analysis was um, that uh, there was a worldwide effort to sequence the genome of as many different uh, bird species as was possible at the time. As I told you, the p- part of the problem with all of the work that we did when we published the first genome is we were comparing it with three species, two of which were galliforms. And so there was nothing much that we could say um, in terms of general evolutionary patterns. So um, we collaborated in this large um, international effort to sequence the genomes of as many birds as possible. And in the end, at the, when, when these papers were published at the end of 2014, uh, there was uh, 49 bird species um, selected from right across the avian phylogeny that, was, that could be sequenced, and here they are. Um, the different colors on this tree represent the, the different quality of genomes. So uh, you've got here Um, The black uh, genomes are what what we call uh, genomes that have been sequenced using very traditional, very accurate chemistry called Sanger sequencing. The red ones are uh, are what was described as high-coverage genomes, and ours was amongst those. Here's the peregrine falcon at about 110. So to be able to get all of the variation in the genome, you need to sequence the genome over and over and over and over many times. Um, and um, ours was about 110 times sequenced. Uh, And then in the lighter color were the the poorer quality genome sequences. Um, And uh, so so at that time, they were able to to basically compare all of these different genomes using lots and lots of very highly computational tools and produce a new phylogeny for the birds. And this is the the avian phylogeny. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it um, except to say that you can't imagine the relief in our lab when this chunk of the genome of the the phylogeny came out. And our original um, crazy idea that the falconiformes were actually grouping with the passeridae actually turned out to be true. Um, And even more interesting than that, I suppose, is the fact that... um, here are So here are the falconiformes at the top of this tree. Um, where are the other raptors? Well, here they are, owls, eagles, new World vultures, which tells you that raptorial lifestyle and that raptorial phenotype has evolved more than once in the alien group. And that raptors are effectively a, a group of species that have undergone convergent evolution. You know, I, I could spend the rest of the talk just, just talking about what came out of that phylogeny, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to move on now to a little bit of work on the, the work that we've been doing on the sake Falcon. Um, the Hero Falcons, as I told you, despite the fact that they look really quite different from each other, here's the gear of course, and they have different ranges, as far as we can tell, they really are very recent indeed. To the extent that they haven't even started developing um, an, an evolutionary... Uh, differentiation that is really measurable um, at the level of the phylogeny. Okay, so if you do a phylogeny of these things, they overlap. They don't, uh, all, not all sequences go to the, um, the same individual. So we started looking at the Saker falcon. We we're very interested in the Saker falcon for obvious the reasons I've outlined, but you can see its really vast distribution here. Uh, and so what we looked at initially, we took that candidate gene approach. So the approach I was telling you about before, uh, which we uh, we did the marker-assisted falconry, we started looking at whether or not we get the same results using candidate genes um, uh, versus regions uh, of the genome which were not under direct selection to see whether we could start seeing a difference in the um, genetic structure. And the reason we did this was that previous work that had looked at this using DNA fingerprinting-type techniques had shown a, a hint of what's, what, what we would call isolation by distance. So the farther you get away from the white population, the more black you are, et cetera. Although it was not, not perfect by any means, um, we didn't see any really major um, uh, uh, breakpoints in the genetic structure of the population. Certainly, from the perspective of identifying migratory populations, that was not something that seemed to be possible. Even more interesting, this is the whole of the hero falcon lineage you don 't see four groups you don 't see four four different species in the phylogeny. you see two major groups that are spanned by these species, but each lineage has more than one species in it okay so it 's not as if we can you know um, take a, 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 the genome of an individual and be absolutely certain using these genetic markers um, that that we can identify what it is so um Using standard DNA profiling methods, and standard DNA um, genetic methods, you can't distinguish reliably between these different species. There you go back to this question that you're always asked by the policy makers, which is, what does DNA profiling tell you? In the case of here, DNA, can't, DNA profiling, or standard DNA sequencing, can't even tell you what species you've got in your hand. Okay, so we needed other methods. So what we did, was we compared these SNPs that were in genes that were with SNPs that were outside of genes, and this is the pattern you get. Each of these lines is um, an individual, and in this case, we've got red and green, and this is what happens if you force the um, genetic structure into the, into the uh, whole sample set into two different genetic pools. Here you can see um, that some individuals have uh, some red, Um, uh, uh, about half red and half green, and on average you see rather little change across the whole um, uh, piece, across the whole of the range in terms of the proportion of red or blue, or at least it's not easily predictable. If you, however, go and just look at the um, SNPs that are found in genes that we chose that matter, then you can see something different. And here you can see CHQ is showing something distinct both when you force it into two groups and when you force it into three groups. CHQ is Qinghai. It's the Tibetan plateau. And so this gave us the first hint that something weird and different was going on in the Qinghai-Tibetan plateau um, that we could could potentially investigate. Um, And these are the genes that we used um, uh, to look for uh, uh, different uh, diversity. These are exon, what we call exon spanning intron crossing fragments. So they're not within uh, exons. Um, but basically, what we found was um, that there were some. And this is a really complicated plot, but I'm not. I'm very briefly explaining. This is the level of genetic differentiation between each SNP in each population, and this is the heterozygosity. And if you get higher levels of genetic differentiation, these are the same kind of markers that were originally discovered for the fish. To do that fish pop tray study, if you look for these markers that fall outside the expected range, they may be something that, that, that are telling you something about local um, adaptation. Um, and these were uh, markers that we were able to detect. And then we looked at those markers and to, to look at how they grouped within different populations. And the thing again that, that was that was interesting to us um, was that we found. Uh, non-random patterns of variation. And so here is um, uh, the uh, melanocortin-1 receptor gene, where we see grouping of populations in this part of the plot, and also here, and these are the, in red, these are the Qinghai individuals. Um, And uh, over here, again, in the MHC plot, these are the Qinghai individuals. So they were starting to show small uh, signatures of uh, different uh, genetic grouping compared to the the main, um, uh, the main group of, uh, of individuals. However, this is a very small number of SNPs, and really to do this properly, we needed to look across the genome, which is what we have done. And this, um, the rest of what I'm gonna describe now is, is just literally just come out in molecular ecology, uh, and it is um, a, an analysis of the entire transcriptome, uh, blood transcriptome of Saker falcons taken from across the range, um, Uh, from chicks on the nest. So the only way we can really um, control for, or or attempt to control for environmental variation is by taking birds that have have experienced as similar a lifestyle in their lives as they possibly could because the transcriptome is heavily influenced by even things that are happening all the time. So it changes very rapidly. um, And if you're living in a different environment, um, that can heavily influence it. So we took chicks on the nest, Um, that were um, above 30 days old, prior to fledging, took blood from those individuals, and we compared the uh, transcriptome, sequence transcriptome from those individuals, uh, across uh, all of the populations that I mentioned previously. Uh, And this is a a sort of complicated plot, um, a summary, really, of what we found. Uh, Here are the the sites where we um, took the samples. So, Slovakia, Moldova, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and Qinghai. These are the frequencies of the SNPs across the genome that we were looking at, and this is the really important thing. I mean, there's a lot of, of sequence here, 110 gigabases of data, and I'm not going to talk much about that. Represents about 67% of the total gene set that we find in, in, the, in the reference genome. Okay. So the the key thing here is the uh, this this again this this. Um, structure thing that I showed you before, and if you look, if you force the population into two, then the western group in, come in green, there's a little bit of, of gene flow, um, and the eastern group come in red, okay? Um, and, but the, the thing that really, really surprised us is if you then um, force the population into three, this genetic, sorry, genetic structure into four, what you find is that the, these two populations that are small and, and isolated uh, become distinctive, and this is probably because they don't exchange genes anymore because there's lots of um, unsuitable land between them. Um, but then what we what we found was that the Kazakhstan and Mongolian population formed a single unit, and the Qinghai population formed a separate unit, despite the fact that the Qinghai you could look, squint hard enough and say it's an intermediate position, <coughs> but that's not what um, uh, the data said. So what we did then is we took the polymorphism data from the regions of the genome that were not predicted to be under direct selection. Those are intergenic um, regions and, and introns, like we did with the previous ethic analysis, and we used that information to reconstruct the history of the population. We did that in a number of ways, but the way, the, basically the way you do it is you take the variation. And you basically ask you, you put it into a simulation program and you say what 's the most likely uh, explanation for the data that I have and you can give the program lots of different potential explanations and indeed we did uh, and the the most likely explanation of the, of the of the genetic structure that we see now and the genetic variation that we see now is as follows and it 's effectively that the the ancestral Saker population, which came from the hero falcon ancestor. We've got here a time of divergence from the hero falcon ancestor at about 36,000 years ago, followed by an increase in, and so these numbers here are, um, this is time of divergence, and this is effective population size, number of breeders, followed by um, a, an increase in population size over time, and then a division between the west and the eastern part of the distribution, but at, at somewhere between three and four thousand years ago um, and then the, the, the most likely uh, subdivision between Qinghai and Kazakhstan and Mongolia um, was something in the region again of three to four thousand years ago, and the, the the time of divergence here uh, sorry the, the, these are the affected populations, sorry the time of divergence between these guys. Was about one and a half thousand years ago, which suggests that the Qinghai population started to invade the, um, the Tibetan plateau between one and two thousand years ago. We did it in a number of different ways, and it always gave us this result. Okay, so these populations um, diverged about two and a half thousand years ago. Sorry, I was confusing the effective size with the time of divergence. They're very similar. So these are the effective sizes. This is the time of divergence of between west and east. And then this is the time of divergence between Kazakhstan and Qinghai. And these are the inferred number of migrants, genetic migrants per generation. So what that says is that this is a very recent event. And if we were to overall look at the scenario that we think is the most likely, basically what we see is that the Saker initially diverges from its hero falcon cousins in the western part of its range, um, you know, some, something in the region of twenty to 30,000 years ago, it then expands as the, as the habitat opens up into Kazakhstan and Mongolia, it then expands across Eurasia, reaching this whole area of Kazakhstan and Mongolia, where it expands again, and then very recently, in the last couple of thousand years, has migrated onto the plateau. Okay. So the question is, if that's a plausible explanation, And it's not the only explanation, but it's the most likely one given the the transcriptome um, variation data we have. How did that happen? And for that, we were really, uh, we found some really surprising results. Um, When we looked, hunted for genes that had the most divergent patterns of differentiation between our populations, the gene that came out top is called EPAS1. It's an erythropoietin gene. And it is a gene that has been found to equip humans and many other species with living at very high altitude. Uh, And it is basically a gene that allows uh, increased oxygen um, efficiency uh, for for populations living at very high altitude. And um, what we found with this particular gene, and and here it is here, is that, that... there was, uh, if we compare the Qinghai population with the Mongolian and Kazakhstan population, there is a, a, a change in one of the exons that a non-synonymous change. It changes the amino acid, and in the in the uh, the Kazakhstan and Mongolian population, this polymorphism is very rare. Uh, but when you go and, and and the alternative, the valine, is is um, uh, much more common. But when you go onto the plateau populations. Almost all individuals have the alanine. And so that's that's really interesting. It's basically using standing genetic variation uh, to allow rapid um, invasion of the plateau. We also saw a contrasting pattern with the MHC class 2B, the MHC, the major histocompatibility complex, which is one of the genes that's involved in the immune cascade and particularly involved in, in um, uh, uh, immune defense against uh, pathogens. And this particular um, uh, gene shows very interesting patterns of variation between um, Mongolia, Qinghai, and um, Kazakhstan as well, but not in the same direction. There is an amino acid change, but what we see in, on the, the population in the plateau is actually evidence of relaxed selection, as opposed to very stro- strong directional selection. So the directional section here is directional selection in Kazakhstan and Mongolia, not on the Qinghai-Tibetan Plateau. Why would that be? Well, there's a theory that says that um, high-altitude anoxic, uh, hypoxic environments um, are very, uh, um, are very uh, difficult environments for pathogens to proliferate in. And that um, populations that are living at those high altitudes n- ha- are dealing with a more uh, simpler environment in terms of the whole ecology of the system, including the pathogen load that they have. And, p- and people have done experimental analysis to look at immune um, immune uh, responses and also pathogen diversity in a number of species, doing paired comparisons of high and low altitude, uh, and that seems to be. Um, uh, a, a prevailing hypothesis that's basically building up, that the higher up you live, the simpler the ecosystem you're living in and the lower the diversity of pathogens that you're facing. And that does, that means that you need less MHC diversity. Um, this EPAS1 gene, though, is the thing that really uh, interested us because it's not the first time that it's been identified in uh, high-altitude adaptation. Um, in In humans that live, um, the, the Tibetan humans, the CPAS1 gene um, allele uh, is, uh, is very important for populations living at high frequency. Very interestingly, it doesn't come from a human, uh, from a homo sapiens uh, origin. It's actually a Denisovan allele. It's found in Denisovan populations. It seems to be a case of adaptive introgression, effectively allowing populations. And, then, and the Tibetan dog, appears to have got its epas one allele from the gray wolf population that lives on the Tibetan plateau as well. So that's another example of adaptive introgression, allowing populations to persist in that that landscape. Um, So so here are a number of different um, processes that may be contributing to that rapid uh, colonization of the plateau. So very briefly... I've got a couple of minutes, five minutes. Okay, very briefly then, I'm just going to talk with you about a few things um, further. And um, more than anything else, I just wanted to say that I hope at least I've been able to uh, show that there there are some new and additional bits of information you can get from genomic analysis in conservation context that you can't get from classical um, genetic analysis and DNA profiling. Um, And um, that those analyses uh, are proving now to give us a a major um, potential um, uh, benefit for conservation. How we incorporate the presence or absence of these really unique alleles into conservation programs is still a matter of major debate. One of the things that we've been doing in the IUCN specialist group um, over the last few years is addressing these things. There are some really, really interesting things happening. In southern Africa, for instance, there's what's known as intentional genetic manipulation going on in um, wild populations of uh, ungulates, especially where these. Are, this is a golden gnu, but there are lots of different rare plumage, uh, not plumage, uh, pelage forms where these animals are being sold for very, very high numbers, indeed, and really changing the the, uh, the landscape. A few years ago, as I said, we formed this uh, the specialist group, and we're really interested to expand and to expand the number of people who are involved, including here and especially here in the Middle East uh, and in West Asia. Um, and we have people who are, and Gary Carvalho was one of the people that was involved in the fish pop trace, um, uh, the, the the cod analysis that I showed earlier. Paul Butcher is actually works for the FAO, works on livestock. So we have a big diversity, including people who are working in policy as well. So if any of you are interested in getting involved in, in this and helping us to um, bring genetics to uh, the conservation community, into the policy community. Then, um, then I'd be very, very, well, uh, very pleased to hear from you. So we've started our um, our crusade, if you like, of using genetics in conservation um, through the IUCN. The, the meeting in Abu Dhabi just a couple of years ago, um, uh, we started working with a lot of different um, organisations, IUCN specialist groups. Um, and I think that that would potentially lead to a lot of um, uh, new avenues of research and also a conservation benefit. So, just remains for me to thank all of my colleagues who, who um, did uh, the work. Um, shang Jiang Zan, who um, uh, has been, been very, very important in in developing this work over the last few years. Andrew, who was sat in the audience. Um, we work a lot with um, uh, we worked initially a lot with the Beijing Genomics Institute, still are, um, in doing a lot of the sequencing, um, but most of our colleagues are based at the Institute of Zoology and Genomics Sciences, and this work was funded by the Royal Society, um, including the Royal Society Mutant you very much.